Welcome to Session 11 of World Sepsis Congress 2021, Impactful Trials and Innovative Trial Design in Sepsis and COVID-19. We have a fabulous lineup of speakers, and the session is chaired by our very own Flavia Machado, member of the GSA Executive Committee and key collaborator in the fight against sepsis in Latin America and worldwide. Without further ado, over to Flavia. Hello, my name is Flavia Machado. I am a part of uh, Global Sepsis Alliance uh, Executive Committee and uh, also a professor of clinical care at the Federal University of, uh, in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And it's my great pleasure to welcome on this section today where we are going to discuss the impactful trials and innovative trial design on sepsis and COVID-19. We're gonna have a uh, wonderful sixth talks discussing the most important aspects on the, this trial designs and uh, the best trials that we have. And it's my pleasure to first welcome on, uh, uh, on our uh, session, uh, Professor Kate Rowan. Uh, Professor Kate Rowan is the director of the Intensive Care National Audit Research Center, known as ICNARC. Uh, she is an honorary professor at the London School of Hygiene, Tropical Medicine, and adjunct professor at Monastery University in Australia. Professor uh, Rowan, uh, after she got his PhD uh, at the University of Oxford, founded ICNARC. ICNARC, for those who doesn't know, uh, it is uh, an independent, non-profit scientific organization uh, who, which aims is to facilitate improvement uh, in the structure, the process, and uh, the outcomes and experience of critical care. The database of ICNAC now has more than 2.5 uh, million of uh, critical care admissions. And uh, Professor Rowan is also deeply involved in many, many, many uh, very well-designed and qualified studies. And she's going to tell us about one of these uh, uh, platform trials she's involved in, uh, which is the adaptation that VMAPCAPS uh, run through during the COVID pandemic. Very, be very welcome, Dr. Rowan. Thank you very much, Flavia, and good day, everybody out there. It's an absolute honor to be speaking at the World Sepsis Congress, so thank you very much. It's also been an honor to have seen the recovery trial and remap cap up close during this pandemic. And I'm going to hear much more about that from many experts in this session. I should also say I'm very proud to be a member of the remap cap family. And I've been asked to talk to you about the adaptation of the remap cap trial during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm sure we all remember this. The H1N1 pandemic. 2009, 2010, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there in the audience who can't, from, can't forget the clinical burden that this also brought on critical care. Some of us also remember this, I'm sure, recently put together by Amanda Royak and colleagues, but what this showed us was that actually we had a lot of studies that were registered uh, on clinical trials databases during the H1N1 pandemic, but only 73 patients were recruited into an interventional study and no studies actually reported their results during the pandemic. 
So we sort of learned no information as we went through the H1N1 pandemic on how to treat patients with H1N1. So it won't surprise you that learning led to the planning for the remap cap trial. And this actually commenced in 2011, almost as soon as we came out the other side of the H1N1 pandemic. So what's remap? What does it mean? It means randomized because if we're going to evaluate interventions, we need to randomize. Embedded means that we need when clinical practice is overburdened, capacity is full, that clinical care and research are almost as one and we're learning while we're doing. Multifactorial because we need to know about lots of different things and an adaptive platform. And more of this as I go through my talk. Remap CAP was first funded in 2014. The CAP stands for Community Acquired Pneumonia, Severe Acute Respiratory Infection. And it was funded as a work package within a much broader program of the Platform for European Preparedness Against Re-Emerging Epidemics. So the purpose of REMAP-CAP was to generate evidence that could be applied to clinical practice during a pandemic. The first patient with community-acquired, severe community-acquired pneumonia was actually uh, recruited into REMAP-CAP early in early April 2016 in, the, in Utrecht in the Netherlands. But then this happened, and I'm sure we all remember this. So suddenly, REMAP-CAP needed to step up and do what it had been designed to do in the interpandemic period, ready for the impending pandemic. So the first adaptation, if you like, was capped to COVID. So from community-acquired pneumonia to coronavirus disease. The next adaptation was we were aware from earlier reports the critical care, intensive care was going to be overwhelmed. And therefore, the inclusion criteria of admission to an intensive care unit, as remap cap had, wasn't going to suffice for the critically ill patients outside ICU. So that was changed to widen the scope. So another adaptation to including patients who were critically ill and receipt of critical uh, illness organ support to incorporate those critical care surge areas. And the last thing is, although out mortality at 90 days, as we know, is the agreed best primary outcome for trials in sepsis, actually in a pandemic, you need something earlier, sooner, so you're generating the evidence sooner. And so we transformed this to a primary outcome of days alive and free from organ support at 21 days. And I'm sure you'll hear more about that in the session. So those adaptations were actually put together into a pandemic appendix that was added to the core protocol that was already in existence for REMAP-CAP so that REMAP-COVID could be sort of seamless. And domain-specific appendices, or, or DSAs as they are here, the domain is basically a group of interventions that are evaluated together in, in a therapeutic area. And these were also rapidly approved, prepared and approved. And much later, as you can see down there, REMAP-CAP even extended its sort of uh, areas 
from the severe or critical care patient into evaluating some domains uh, to those patients with moderate COVID out on the ward. So what happened? Well, corticosteroids were already being evaluated in REMAP-CAP, and that domain passed over into COVID-19. And you can see down the left here, uh, months of the year in 2020 and 2021, and basically this sort of uh, domains, these, these therapeutic areas with interventions in them on the right-hand side, slowly being adopted or adapted into the platform that is the uh, platform trial of remap CAP or COVID. Corticosteroids, antivirals, immune modulation, immunoglobulin, statins, vitamin C, antiplatelets, etc. And as you can see, even as late as March 21, new domains still being added. So how does it work? Well, the reason it's multifactorial is that a patient with suspected or proven COVID-19 who is eligible to be in the trial basically is randomized into the uh, available domains that are being run in a particular hospital and, is, and that they are eligible for. So in this case, I've an example of the antiviral immune modulation and therapeutic anticoagulation domains. And then the patient will be randomized to one intervention in the antiviral, one in the immune modulation, one in the therapeutic anticoagulation. So if you like, the patient is being evaluated for a regimen a bit more like the care we give than just a simple A versus B uh, parallel uh, randomized control trial. So that's an important aspect of the multifactorial nature. So... Looking at top left here, patients are randomized into REMAP-CAP, their outcomes are reached and the trial data are recorded. And then at regular intervals, updated data are sent to the Expert Statistical Analysis Committee at Berry Consultants in the US who are experts in these areas, who update the trial statistical models as formal interim analyses. And these were done more greater frequency during the pandemic. The models are reviewed to see if any of the interventions have met predefined statistical triggers, superiority or efficacy, where an intervention is shown to be beneficial, inferiority, where an intervention is shown to be worse than the other interventions in the domain, or futility, where there is no benefit from the intervention. And for those interventions where the statistical triggers are not met, response-adaptive randomization is conducted and that weights the randomization proportions in favor of the interventions that appear to be more beneficial to patients. So it means that more patients will receive the more beneficial treatments earlier during the pandemic. What's happened in terms of results, and you're going to hear a lot about these today, uh, the corticosteroid domain is closed. Uh, we had those wonderful results from the recovery trial, which you'll hear about, I'm sure, on dexamethasone. And that uh, caused uh, uh, an analysis or triggered an analysis on, on our corticosteroid domain. Uh, the antiviral domain, uh, there were safety issues about hydroxychloroquine being used widely. Uh, and our uh, regulatory agency uh, paused uh, for hydroxychloroquine in the UK in May. And then Kalitra was found to be futile uh, later in the year in November. I won't say too much more about the immune modulation and the Tossi and Sari result, uh, which, as you know, has been published, and Tony is going to talk later in this session on that. Uh, convalescent plasma has been shown to be futile for the immunoglobulin domain, 
And more recently, therapeutic anticoagulation has been shown to be uh, futile for those with severe COVID, but actually superior for patients with uh, moderate or less severe COVID. All the other domains are open and recruiting. And because uh, REMAP CAP is a global trial, while in the UK now we've got a bit of respite uh, from COVID-19, we're well aware that other areas of the world are seeing uh, the burden of COVID-19 still. And that allows us to continue to randomize into the trial. And of course, we can only go global if we have global funding. And here's just acknowledging, uh, I'm proud to say as a, as a UK person, uh, our National Institute of Health Research also joining the sort of fold of funders for this really important trial. In terms of where are we uh, right now, so this was accessed a couple of days ago, just looking at the middle column there, 6,224 patients have been randomized into REMAP COVID or REMAP CAP for COVID. And what's really interesting is that leads to almost 11,500 patient randomizations because of that multifactorial nature that people are being we're contributing to evaluation of more than one intervention in more than one domain. So it's an extremely, uh, there's an economy of scale and efficient way to understand, uh, as we say, as we deliver clinical care, to learn from that clinical care we're delivering. Just as a little rah, rah, rah for Team UK, uh, we had 12 sites open in Remap Cat pre-pandemic, and I'm proud to say because of the support that we had from our urgent public health bank, uh, branding from our, from our government and our NHS and our amazing NIHR clinical research network that helps us deliver research at hospitals in the NHS, we were able to go up to 143 sites, 46% of the global number of sites, and randomize over 4,400 patients, which was 71% of that global total. So I can feel as a Brit, although I'm sad to have Brexited, uh, that we've at least done our bit for Remap Cap. We continue to collaborate. There's a multi-platform RCT that's about to report on anticoagulation. We're collaborating with the Lovett trial on vitamin C, new regions, new domains all the time. Uh, there's a hydroxychloroquine meta-analysis, multidisciplinary experts joining us all the time and also meta-analyses, one done on steroids by the WHO, and one pending on uh, the um, immune modulators, IL-6 receptor antagonists. So I hope I've done a little kind of run through the REMAP cap and its adaptations for COVID-19. And please, 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 I'm just one of a large number of people in the REMAP cap family, but please come and join us if you possibly can. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathy. Uh, uh, it was a wonderful uh, talk, and EMAP is amazing. It's a wonderful thing that's what, what you're doing. Uh, there were greetings from many parts of the world uh, in the chat, but there is a specific question, which is uh, how do you evaluate for multiple interventions? I think most of the people are, are very curious about how you manage to evaluate for such uh, multiple interventions that the same patient uh, is suffering. And I would add uh, to this question uh, the issue of uh, informed consent. Can you clarify for us? So um, 
I am not a Bayesian statistician, um, and I will find it hard to answer the uh, evaluation of the multiple interventions. But essentially, remap cap should be seen as a large number of A versus B trials just within within the sort of the same trial platform. So in the model, each intervention within a domain is actually compared with other interventions in the domain and the control, and then domains between domains are also uh, for interactions are, are also evaluated. Uh, it's complex statistical modeling uh, done by people who are well expert at that complex uh, modeling. And I'm certainly, uh, as uh, you move on to the presentation that Tony is doing on uh, tocilizumab, maybe Tony can explain a little bit more uh, how those comparisons were done within, within the domain. Uh, in terms of informed consent, uh, it's uh, a global informed consent uh, that, that, that's uh, operated. And um, I think these trials are the trials of the future. And obviously, you don't want to bombard patients with a multitude of different informed consent forms. So it's very much a, a, a consent form to sort of join the platform and to basically uh, consent to have uh, the domains they are eligible for to be randomized within them. Perfect, perfect. Thank you so much, Katie. And uh, let's go on uh, with our next speaker, which is uh, Dr. Francois Lamontagne. Uh, Dr. Francois Lamontagne, uh, it's a critical care specialist and a clinician scientist uh, at the University of Sheebrook and the Center of Research of Sheebrook since 2010. Uh, uh, we all know all the papers and contributions that uh, Dr. Lamontagne has done uh, in the past few years, uh, including clinical trials in resuscitation intervention and knowledge translation activities. And recently he was appointed as a co-scientific director for uh, the Canadian Sepsis Network and the director of research in pandemics founded by uh, the research at Quebec Santé. Uh, Francois Lamontagne will uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the innovative trials to guidelines, how we go from innovative trials to guidelines, uh, the WHO method. Be very welcome, Francois. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Flavia, and thank you to all the um, organizers for this invitation. It's an honor to be with you today and um, uh, present on um, uh, guidelines work undertaken um, by WHO or talk about the WHO uh, method. Um, certainly from uh, this uh, disclosure slide, um, you'll, you'll understand that I'm, this is a, a bit of an outsider's perspective on the quote-unquote WHO method. Uh, Janet Diaz later on today will be presenting on behalf of WHO. Um, but as you can uh, tell, I've, I've had the privilege of um, chairing a few of uh, the WHO guidelines on uh, therapy and prevention of COVID-19 during this pandemic. But my, my collaboration with WHO dates back uh, long before the pandemic, uh, notably during the various Ebola outbreaks. Um, and I have been collaborating with many of Janice's predecessors. And, and in, in, in this situation was uh, privy to a very noticeable change, uh, a very positive change, which 
uh, in my view, is a bit of a, um, a revolution in its own right. And it is it is this change that I, I think should be celebrated that, that I mean to uh, talk uh, to you about today. Um, oftentimes, when, when asked to talk about guidelines work, uh, the focus is on methodology. And it's obviously an important topic. It deserves to be mentioned that, uh, you know, guidelines are there, you know, have a, a distinct methodology uh, it's it's a in a way uh, design in its own right, um, but that's not the focus of the presentation today. Um, it is important, nonetheless, to mention that a lot of the methodological principles that underline the creation of guidelines um, are sometimes in opposition. So, for example, you you are expected uh, to create a trustworthy guideline to uh, rely on all of the available evidence. They have to be quite comprehensive, but at the same time, those guidelines have to be um, uh, created very efficiently uh, for them to be very relevant. So it, the bottom line is that it's, it's hard to do all that, uh, but something happened during this pandemic that made it possible. Uh, you, you've just heard a brilliant presentation by Kathy about RemapCap, uh, a, a platform trial, uh, so my my own personal view is that what what made this happen, what made the, the the trustworthy, efficient guidelines possible, just like what made the the embedded uh, platform trials possible uh, during this pandemic, is not you know a new technology. It's not a, a new invention. The RemapCap you know trial was designed before the pandemic. Uh, and similarly, there were a lot of uh, very capable groups uh, willing and able to create trustworthy and very efficient guidelines before the pandemic. But somehow the stars aligned during the pandemic. And this it is about, you know, this alignment of the stars that I that I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking um, uh, about uh, today. Uh, and so from this outsider's perspective, my view is that this this small revolution uh, hinges on three three you know main ingredients uh, largely you know thanks to the WHO leadership uh, my view is that the WHO took on a very proactive central coordination role and that was crucial the WHO relied on uh, very valuable external methodological support to evaluate and report uh, uncertainty so to apply that methodology and that was also crucial and then the last part is perhaps you know perhaps the most important but who really uh, injected a lot of global relevance in the area of guidelines uh, and this is also something to be to be celebrated so i'll be sharing three examples that illustrate this this you know personal view and the first example has to do with the uh, first uh, guidelines on therapies for COVID-19 uh, released by the WHO, the, the guidelines um, on corticosteroid therapy. Now, to put uh, this into context, uh, the pandemic was declared in March of last year, and as early as in June, the, the results of the recovery trial uh, were released. So immediately, there was immense pressure to create a guideline uh, based on the recovery data uh, but at the same time, there was, like I mentioned, uh, pressure to consider data from a number of other trials that were still ongoing, including the, the remap camp trial. And so 
in the years, you know, in, before the pandemic, you would have had multiple groups releasing multiple guidelines at multiple time points, some quite early, some a lot later, and they could have, you know, disagreed uh, with one, one, one with the other. Um, in this instance, the WHO had immense, you know, uh, uh, leadership and uh, resolved to broker a win-win-win, uh, you know, situation where trialists, uh, you know, were sort of convened and asked to share data even before the trials were completed. You know, it was, remember, it was not so long that it was um, difficult to get consensus on sharing of data after the publication of a main analysis. This time around, trialists were asked to release data before a trial was complete, uh, completed. Uh, journal editors were part of this discussion, meta-analysts and, and guideline makers. And the end result is, is a very desirable situation where everyone you know, receives academic credit for very valuable work, but the information, the maximum uh, uh, amount of information is made available to ensure that guidelines that are both very trustworthy uh, uh, and efficient are released as soon as possible to inform care globally. So that is that is really uh, a game changer, um, and uh, you know we we have to be thankful that there is a stakeholder with enough clout to broker such uh, such agreements in the in the global interest. The other example has to do with meth methodology a little bit more. I, I think we probably or underappreciated the amount of methodological input that is necessary in order to, to, to create very trustworthy guidelines. Um, the methodology is there for two reasons. It, it increases the likelihood that, you know, the panel will get it right. Uh, creating a guideline is very much a subjective process it you know you're, you're you have very like you never have 100% certainty or 0% certainty you're navigating in gray zones and it's a judgment call but the the method that you know allows you to increase your chances of getting it right and not having to uh, update your guidelines and you know subsequently methodology is also there to help the panel explain how it came up with you know this this uh, decision in the end. It breaks down these very important underlying principles uh, and it allows the, the, the panel to explain why a subgroup effect was deemed, you know, credible enough to impact the recommendation or not. Uh, and therefore, if other people in the world disagree with this subjective decision made by the guideline panel, at the very least, they can understand and explain on which grounds they agree or, or disagree with, uh, with, with a guideline. So that, that, is, that is quite important. And in this case, I think uh, there, was, there was invaluable uh, methodological uh, input um, in, in these guidelines that have been produced and that are continuing um, to be released. And then the last point I thought I would make is, is perhaps the WHO's most important contribution. In a way, this was always very important for the WHO, but it wasn't as, um, uh, it, it didn't impact the guideline you know, world as much as it is impacting the guidelines during this pandemic. And it, it has to do with global relevance. 
So up on screen is a, this drawing I just made up. So don't mind the, it's not to scale, but the numbers are, are, are correct. The, the numbers represent the relative risk for death in studies evaluating hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis. And looking at this, you could say, well, the, the you know, evidence is quite uncertain. But the, the guideline methodology stipulates that you should look not at the relative effects of an intervention, but at the absolute effects. These are more relevant. This is the information you should rely on. And immediately, you can see the confidence interval is much, much narrower. The certainty is greater. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's difficult to be much closer to zero than that. But a, a relevant guideline um, has to be very clear what you are rating certainty about. In this instance, the panel wasn't rating its certainty that there would be zero effect. The panel was rating its certainty on whether or not the effect, if any effect existed, was going to be important enough uh, uh, to impact a recommendation. Moreover, a relevant guideline has to consider not only one outcome, but all of the advantages and disadvantages associated with an intervention. That is what relevance is about. It, you know, it would be a lot easier to just contemplate, to just consider the p-value, but that's not what relevance is. A relevant guideline considers all of the advantages and disadvantages. And lastly, from a patient perspective, this is what you know these WHO guidelines are doing. They're taking, uh, you know, they're giving priority to, to the patient uh, values and preferences, but values and preferences globally from a global perspective. Now, understandably, values and preferences may vary around the world, but that is, you know, what the panel is now doing under WHO leadership is to encompass all of those values and preferences, which admittedly makes the work of a panel much harder, but makes those guidelines a lot more uh, relevant uh, globally. Uh, and hopefully this is, this is something that, um, this is certainly a, a change for the better and a change that will last uh, after the, the pandemic. Um, so whether or not you appreciate this, there have been a number of guidelines uh, created in a very, very short time span, uh, almost as quickly as uh, data uh, uh, are, are, are released uh, on steroids, remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine treatment and prophylaxis and you know, antivirals and ivermectin and, and many others are coming. And I, I suspect this will continue for as long as the pandemic uh, rages. And we have to be very, very uh, thankful for that. Um, I would leave you on this last slide on, on a reflection and a, and a question. I, I certainly wonder what will happen after the pandemic. This is a massive undertaking and, and whether or not the WHO uh, maintains this, uh, this, this, um, this effort uh, in the long haul, uh, we certainly should hope so. Um, it would be it would be certainly desirable to continue to make very methodologically sound guidelines very very efficiently, but it would also be very desirable as other organizations uh, get back in the business of releasing guidelines. Um, you know these professional societies uh, that they take the same care um, WHO is taking to at least consider the global relevance of uh, of their guidelines. Uh, that that is important for uh, for all of us. Um, thank you very much. That that was all I had to say. Thank you very much, Gaspar. Uh, a wonderful talk. Uh, there is a question here that I think is interesting. 
Uh, could you explain a little bit more uh, and give examples about what are the patient's preferences and how we deal with this when we decide about uh, the outcomes? Uh, sure. Uh, so, I mean, the patient, uh, so like, as I said, the decisions are subjective and whether you're talking about certainty of the evidence or, or, or anything else, you're, you're, you're working on a continuum. And so I mean, one, one thing to consider is that an intervention never has only, you know, uh, uh, benefits or harm. Oftentimes there's a balance. Uh, I mean, take the case of, forget COVID for a minute, uh, you know, take anticoagulation to prevent uh, pulmonary embolism or, or uh, you know, you have to consider the benefit. So the absolute risks of having a very bad, you know, event, uh, something very bad happening to you, but you also have to consider the risks of causing harm with your intervention. And different pa patients may have different perspectives on these things. Um, a patient who is quite young may be quite willing to, you know, stay in the ICU for a very long period of time, uh, regardless of the uh, functional deficits that might arise. But someone uh, later stages in his or her life might consider that this might be unwilling to pay this price. And so values and preferences and how you attribute a you know different value to, to a different advantage and disadvantage balance uh, varies a little bit. So the panel members have to um, put themselves in the shoes of most patients. And so that is, it is, a, it is a, you know, they're walking a very, they're treading a, a fine line and have to try to consider everyone's perspective. And, uh, and so guidelines are reported in a way that explains how the guideline uh, to consider into consideration what could be varying uh, values and preferences. In general, strong recommendations are made when it is felt that the different that when the, it is felt that the values and preferences are unlikely to vary a lot uh, across uh, different patient uh, groups. Okay. Thank you very much, Francois. Uh, a wonderful talk. Let's go ahead and ask our next speaker to give his talk. This is the. Anthony Gordon, Professor Gordon is the Chair of Anesthesia and Clinical Care at Imperial College of London, an intensive care consultant based on St. Mary's Hospital. He's also the Director of Research for uh, the UK Intensive Care Society and is Chair of the Clinical Care Experimental Medicine Group. He's a founder of the UK Clinical Care Research Group and he is the UK Chief Investigator for RemapCap, uh, which was just addressed by uh, Professor uh, Kate Rowan. And he is going to tell us a little bit about toxibizumab. Be welcome, uh, Anthony. Thank you, Flavia, for the introduction. And thank you for the organizers inviting me to speak. It's an honor to represent uh, Remap Cap uh, today. So I'm going to talk about tocilizumab in COVID-19 and other uh, interleukin-6 receptor antagonists. My disclosures are shown here just to point out uh, Roche and Sanofi provided the drugs uh, to the Department of Health uh, for free in the UK, but had no other input into the trial uh, conduct. As I'm sure you all know, the, we see this uh, severe inflammatory pneumonitis in the severe cases of COVID-19, 
and it's driven by uh, many cytokines and interleukin-6 is uh, thought to be one of uh, that is crucially important. And importantly, uh, it is possible to block uh, IL-6. Um, in the case of tocilizumab, this is a humanized monoclonal antibody that inhibits both membrane-bound and soluble IL-6 receptors. It's been licensed for over a decade now for treating rheumatoid arthritis. And more recently, it's been approved for the cytokine release syndrome that can be seen after CAR T uh, cell therapy. And it was this idea of treating that uh, led clinicians to um, potentially start using it and one of the in COVID. And one of the first reports, this one here coming out of China, is I would say a small case report where they gave it to 20 patients um, who they described 15 of whom got better, or you could say uh, 25% didn't get better. But their conclusion was this improved clinical outcomes and was an effective treatment to reduce mortality. I think many of us would suggest a 20 patient case series uh, wasn't enough to change uh, global care and it needed to be tested uh, in randomized controlled trials. And that's exactly what remap cat was set up to do, as you've heard from Kathy about it, an international multifactorial adaptive platform trial for severely ill patients with community-acquired pneumonia that adapted for COVID-19. And as you've heard, it's a big global family represented um, by many uh, little icons along the bottom, and it's a um, pleasure that I'm able to represent uh, the group here today. So you've heard a lot about the trial, um, how it has multiple domains and multiple interventions. I'm going to talk about tocilizumab and the other IL-6 inhibitor we tested, sarilumab, uh, within the immune modulation uh, domain. And I'm pleased to say uh, that the manuscript was published in the New England Journal of Medicine at the end of February, and you can see the full details and including uh, detailed supplements. So you can read all about the methods we used and the results. So the summary here that for the sake of time, I will have to keep it brief, but to be eligible for the platform, we had simple criteria where you're an adult patient in hospital with acute illness due to suspected or proven COVID-19. The platform exclusion criteria are very simple. Uh, were you uh, actively dying and so on a palliative care pathway? Had you already been in hospital for 14 days uh, because of COVID? And of course, you could only come into the trial once uh, within a three-month period. Then more specifically, we have inclusion-exclusion criteria for every domain and each of the interventions. And for tocilizumab and sarilumab, to be eligible for intervention, you had to have what we called the severe disease state, uh, which was defined as being uh, receiving uh, respiratory uh, support or cardiovascular support in an ICU. And that respiratory support was defined as either high flow nasal oxygen, non-invasive ventilation or full mechanical ventilation. And just to be clear, it was in an ICU, but accepting that many of us have had to extend into surge ICUs. So it was in a critical care environment. And the exclusion criteria listed here, I'm not going to say them all, but again, I think importantly, uh, we tried to recruit patients early in their critical illness. It had to be within 24 hours of ICU admission or starting that organ support. Uh, the, we only excluded patients who were um, severely immune suppressed, who were neutropenic prior to the hospital uh, admission. And of course, it was always left to the clinicians if they felt it wasn't in their patient's best interest uh, to be randomized, they should be excluded.
The two active treatments we had uh, were tocilizumab, uh, given as eight milligrams per kilogram, um, maximum of 800 milligrams over one hour. And in this case, it could be repeated at 12 to 24 hours if the clinicians uh, felt there hadn't been adequate improvement. There was also the possibility of randomizing to sarilumab. In this case, it was just 400 milligrams uh, given IV over one hour. And just to clarify, this is the subcutaneous preparation that was put in an IV bag. And it was open label, and so this control group received standard of care. Kathy mentioned our primary outcome measures, ICU three days, or more specifically, ICU respiratory and cardiovascular organ support three days up to day 21. And just to explain this in a bit more detail, it's an ordinal scale and it's a composite endpoint. So it includes in-hospital death, which we deemed as the worst outcome, uh, and that scored minus one on this ordinal scale. And that is death at any time in the hospital, even after day 21. So that is the worst outcome. And then for the survivors, we count the numbers of days that they are alive and not requiring organ support. So a low number is bad and a high number is good. It meant they recovered more quickly. And again, you've heard a little bit about our uh, design and the statistical model, our analysis used a Bayesian cumulative logistic model. So the way this uh, Bayesian analysis works, you have a prior uh, probability. Um, and for the treatment effects here, we said they were all neutral. We generate the data from the randomization and generate this posterior probability of the primary outcome based on that data. And the way the model is constructed, we generate an odds ratio. And for all the results, an odds ratio of greater than one is good. That means there is more survival and or more days free of organ support. With this Bayesian design, there's no predetermined sample size. We keep randomizing with regular adaptive analysis, but we have predefined triggers for reaching a conclusion. And in summary, though, if the posterior probability was 99% probability that an intervention was superior to control, meaning if the odds ratio was greater than one, we would declare, uh, stop randomizing and say that intervention uh, worked. We equally have a futility uh, stopping if there was a 95% probability that that odds ratio would be less than uh, 1.2. At one of these adaptive analyses, uh, our independent data safety monitoring report reported to us in November that tocilizumab had met that trigger for efficacy compared to the no immune modulation, the control group. And as you'll see, it's 99.75% posterior probability that it was superior. So we then uh, were able to analyze the data. By the time we actually um, followed those patients up and had a now a larger um, data set to analyze, in fact, sarilumab, the other IL-6 inhibitor, had also met the trigger for efficacy. So we can report that as well. And you see at that stage, nearly 900 patients, they at baseline were as you'd expect in a critical care environment, average age of around 60, more men than women, uh, rather obese uh, population. Uh, we recruited patients generally early in their hospital stay, the second day and uh, around 12 hours or so after their admission to ICU. And you can see um, around 29% were receiving high flow nasal cannulae, 40% or so non-invasive ventilation, and 30% fully mechanically ventilated. 
Uh, their CRPs generally around 135, 150 uh, mediums. Um, we'll just point out that the majority of these 900 or so patients uh, that were treated uh, were after uh, June the 17th, after the steroid results first came out from the recovery trial. And as you see, the majority of patients uh, were treated with corticosteroids and around about a third of patients were given uh, remdesivir as well. This is the primary outcome results and the top line is the organ support free days, which was our primary outcome. And you can see the counts here, remembering a low number is bad and a high number is good. You can see the control group had a median uh, of zero whereas it's 10 and 11 in tocilizumab and sarilumab respectively. But for the Bayesian model, which is our primary outcome, you can see the posterior probabilities here. You can see the odds ratios all clearly above one, uh, but the probabilities therefore they're superior, 99.5% uh, um, in the sarilumab group, and now the larger tocilizumab group, more than 99.9%. Uh, for those of you who still may uh, be unfamiliar with these Bayesian models, I would suggest you could look just simply at the in-hospital deaths. And you can see nearly 36% um, in the control group and 28%, 22.2% in the tocilizumab and sarilumab groups respectively. If you like looking them on Kaplan-Meier curves, you can see them here on the left by the individual drug or pulled together for the two IL-6 uh receptor antagonists together clear survival advantage seen um, in those patients followed up up to day uh, 90 and looking at time to both icu discharge on the left and hospital discharge uh on the right you can see those patients treated with tocilizumab and sarilumab uh, recovered uh, more quickly as well and the last bit of uh data um, and results showing for those patients who weren't ventilated at baseline, you could see there was uh, less disease progression to need ventilation, ECMO or death. It was nearly 53% in the control group, but 35 to 40% in those uh, in the tocilizumab and sarilumab uh, group. So it helped prevent disease uh, progression as well. So in summary, we saw in this critically ill population who were receiving organ support in the ICU, when they were treated with IL-6 receptor antagonists within 24 hours, it led to improved outcomes, including survival. This led to immediate changes in practice in the UK, recommendations that these drugs uh, be used uh, in this sick uh, population. And then I'm sure you'll be aware the recovery trial also reported a few weeks later uh, that they had seen beneficial effects. In a sick group of patients, their criteria were patients who were hypoxemic, SATs less than 92 or receiving oxygen and with a CRP greater than 75 uh, with a clear mortality reduction uh, as we had seen as well. The Cochrane group have been looking at all the trials and done a meta-analysis. I don't have time to go through them all here but you can see their conclusion uh, for all cause 28-day mortality there is seem to be this significant mortality reduction and the certainty of evidence uh, rated as high. So uh, why have not all the trials seen a benefit? I don't know, I will con the two largest trials have seen benefits. So maybe it is just a power uh, that comes with larger sample sizes, nothing clever. Um, 
Is it the use of concomitant steroid therapy? Um, both recovery and remap caps suggest that, and I think that's being looked at in the WHO meta-analysis going forward. That may be important you give both drugs. I think it's important we gave the drugs early in the disease process, and I think it's important not to, you, to give it too late. You want a sick group of patients, but not too late to treat them. And I would point out, importantly, none of the trials have seen any safety concerns, no increase in secondary infections, um, even if they haven't shown benefits. So I, would, uh, I think we feel this is a safe drug to use. And so I will stop there and just thank everybody who participated, particularly uh, the patients and their families who consented to take part in this trial. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Great presentation. We have time for a quick answer. Uh, and we have a question, which is uh, if you observe an increase in infection. And I will uh, I add to this question, if you think that this, uh, your results would be reproducible uh, to settings where we have higher rates of nosocomial infection and higher rates of multidrug resistance. Yeah, um, we didn't see any increased rates of infection in our trial. And as I just mentioned, none of the other trials have found that uh, in anywhere in the world. And I would put importantly, um, that includes um, a trial from India that reported recently um, where obviously things like uh, TB are going to be far more common than they may be in the UK. Um, so no increased uh, risk of infection has been seen in any trials. I think people should be careful and look out for it. Um, and remember that if they use CRP, that this um, will be uh, lowered significantly by these drugs and it may be falsely reassuring if there's infection. So people should monitor for that and be wary that the CRP may not rise if there is a secondary infection. And importantly, most of the trials have excluded anybody with an active bacterial infection. So um, select the right group of patients to treat. Thank you so much, Anthony. Uh, let's move on because we are a few minutes late to our next presenter, who is a uh, Professor Luciana Azevedo. Professor Luciana Azevedo is uh, from uh, the Clinical Care and Emergency Medicine Department at the University of Sao Paulo. And he is also uh, uh, from the Research Institute at the Hospital Ciro Libanes in Sao Paulo, Brazil. He is the former president of uh, our Latin American Sepsis Institute, the former president of the Sao Paulo State Society of Clinical Care Medicine, is the member of the Executive Committee of the Brazilian Research an intensive care network, BrickNet, and he's a very good friend of mine. So Luciano will uh, discuss with us corticosteroids in COVID-19, where we are. You're welcome, Luciano. Thank you, Flavia. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for, uh, for the organization, for inviting me to present our data and also to discuss on this very important issue of corticosteroids in COVID-19. So the, 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 the title of my topic is Corticosteroids in COVID-19, where are we? Uh, this is, these are my conflicts of interest. I am one of the main investigators from the Brazilian coalition COVID-19 group that investigates several drugs for treatment of COVID-19 patients. And we, as, as you can see in my, as, as you will see in my presentation, we, uh, made a study on corticosteroids for COVID-19, and for this study, uh, the the Laboratorios Farmacéuticos Ache provided us with the drug and the, the insurance for the for the patients. If you want to uh, 
talk with me about the the the, the issue of corticosteroids or being touched by this one of these uh, uh, one of these channels presented in this in this slide. So uh, COVID nineteen is a disease with uh, several uh, important patterns, and for instance, in the first seven days of the disease, there is a mostly viral response phase when there is no uh, significant uh, uh, compromise in the in the in the patient's lung. And after these first five to seven days, there is a the most prolonged uh, host inflammatory response phase where uh, drugs that can improve inflammation, just like corticosteroids or tocilizumab, may be useful for the patients with COVID-19. Uh, COVID-19 is also associated with in, uh, increase in uh, several cytokines with the so-called uh, cytokine storm, for instance, interleukin-1-beta, uh, TNF-alpha uh, or interferon-gamma may, may, may be increased in patients with COVID-19, which are critically ill. So this is another um, suggestion for the, for the mechanistic standpoint that corticosteroids can be useful to reduce the inflammatory phase of COVID-19 patients. Also, uh, during the ARDS phase of COVID-19, we can have a significant impact of inflammatory response with uh, release of inflammatory cytokines, with uh, adhesion and inflammation caused by neutrophils at the, at the lungs. So this can be modulated, this can be mitigated by corticosteroids uh, during the early phase of uh, ARDS caused by COVID-19. Also, uh, corticosteroid, corticosteroids might have be, uh, be important in the reduction of the fibroproliferative phase, the, the late phase of acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is characterized by uh, in, increases in the production of collagen, collagen also uh, increased in fibroblasts, and corticosteroids also may be modulating, mo modulating this phase as well. The use of corticosteroids from the clinical standpoint in patients with, uh, in patients with respiratory diseases uh, has been tried for several decades so far. This is the, the, the DEXA-ARDS trial, the, the trial with uh, uh, dexamethasone in acute respiratory distress syndrome patients, just published uh, in January 2020 before the start of the pandemics. And the DEXA-ARDS trial showed that uh, corticosteroids might improve the mortality rate in ARDS caused by non-COVID-19, caused by bacteria or other viral uh, ARDS scenarios. So this led to the, to the idea that corticosteroids could be useful for treating patients with COVID-19. The first major clinical trial that was published uh, regarding the corticosteroids use in COVID-19 patients was the recovery trial. Recovery was published uh, in the mid of, uh, of 2020, and recovery showed that in patients with uh, more severe disease, meaning patients hospitalized with COVID-19 using oxygen or high-flow nasal catheter or non-invasive ventilation or mechanical ventilation, uh, the use of corticosteroids, six milligrams of dexamethasone, uh, reduced mortality in these patients. 
differently from patients with without the need of oxygen therapy uh, in, in hospitalized. In these patients, uh, in, in recovery, the use of dexamethasone was associated with a non-significant increase in the mortality ratio, in the mortality rate. So this suggested that uh, dexamethasone should not be used in outpatients and also in hospitalized patients without the need of at least a, a nasal catheter for oxygen uh, replacement, for oxygen support. After the publication of recovery, the Brazilian study uh, investigations of the coalition COVID-19 Brazil uh, trialists pu published the Codex Randomized Clinical Trial. The Codex was a multicenter randomized clinical trial that was only uh, applied to patients with moderate to severe acute respiratory distress syndrome. It had a design similar to the DEXA-ARD study, and we randomized 151 patients to dexamethasone and 148 patients to standard of care, and the intervention was to receive dexamethasone 20 milligrams intravenous for five days, and after 10 milligrams of dexamethasone, intravenous for another five days, and the primary out outcome was uh, ventilator-free days up to 28 days. Uh, this was a study conducted in 41 intensive care units in Brazil, and we saw that the use of dexamethasone was related to an increase, significant increase in the number of days alive and free of mechanical ventilation up to 28 days. 66 days, 6.6 .6 days at the dexamethasone group versus four days at the standard of care group with an statistical significance. We also collected data on the risk of adverse events with dexamethasone that Recover did not report at the time of publication. And we saw that there was no increase in the risk of adverse events with dexamethasone as compared to standard of care. No risk in the, in the uh, no increased risk on the new diagnosis of infection, ventilation associated pneumonia, uh, catheter related infections, or also in the risk of increased use of insulin for hyperglycemia caused by dexamethasone. So this study suggested that dexamethasone is useful for treating, higher doses of dexamethasone are useful for treating patients with COVID-19 ARDS, and they are not associated with significant uh, side effects uh, in, this, in this group of patients. Together with the publication of CODEX, there was the publication of the REMAP-CAP trial that demonstrated that hydrocortisone was associated also with an increase in the number of the days with organ support free in patients with COVID-19 and uh, which are critically ill. When these, these results of recovery codex, REMAP-CAP, Cape COVID and other studies were uh, joined in the meta-analysis provided by the WHO RAP evidence uh, group, this data suggested that uh, the use of corticosteroids for critically ill patients with COVID-19 was associated with a reduced reduction in mortality rates for these patients. So suggesting that corticosteroids are useful for treating patients with COVID-19 and 
uh, WHO also published a guideline at British Medical Journal at the same time, uh, emphasizing the, the, the recommendation of giving six milligrams of dexamethasone for all critically ill patients with COVID-19 admitted to, to hospitals all over the world. So there are uh, still some unanswered questions. For instance, what's the ideal drug? A lot of people still use methylprednisolone instead of dexamethasone, despite the fact that dexamethasone is the uh, drug th that we have evidence on it, that the studies were, the, the biggest studies were done on dexamethasone, recovery and prodex, for instance. We still don't know what's the ideal dose. For instance, call, uh, recovery use the same dose for a patient with several different uh, disease severities for a patient with a nasal catheter and for, a patient on for patients on mechanical ventilation. So the ideal dose, should we use uh, a dose, for instance, the, uh, uh, similar to the codex dose for a, for a most severely ill patient? Uh, what's the ideal time for, for the, the length of treatment for corticosteroids in COVID-19 patients? I mean, should we stop the treatment after 10 days or should we prolong the treatment uh, while the patient is still on mechanical ventilation or the, or the patient is still on the use of supplementary oxygen? And how, is, how about the weaning of corticosteroids? So there are several unanswered questions that need uh, uh, clinical trials that can, can provide us with these answers. With that, I thank you very much for your, for your attention. Thank you, Luciano. Great presentation. There are many comments uh, uh, in the, the, the chat. But uh, maybe uh, if you can speak a little bit more about uh, why we should dexamethasone instead of methyltrednisone or hydrocortisone, it's going to be good because there are two or three questions on the same uh, on the same issue, which means which is the evidence uh, for the other drugs and uh, the, the for dexamethasone. Maybe yes. you can just speak a little bit more about this because there yeah, are sure. questions on this. Yeah, sure. Uh, the the major suggestion for using methylprednisolone mm -hmm. for these patients with COVID nineteen is that. It's based on previous studies suggesting that methylprednisolone has much more lung penetration than other corticosteroids. But when these studies were done, they were not comparing methylprednisolone with dexamethasone. They were comparing methylprednisolone with prednisolone mostly. So we do not have a major comparison between methylprednisolone and dexamethasone. There was a small study, randomized control study, just published in, in BMC infectious disease comparing methylprednisolone with dexamethasone. But this study compared uh, different drugs in different dosages also. So it's difficult to, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very small study, less than 100 and, and something patients, and uh, it compares different dose, doses and different drugs. So it's very difficult to, to achieve a, a conclusion based on this, on this topic. Probably the effect of corticosteroids in COVID-19 patients are related to the class, but not related to the drug per se. So uh, probably methylprednisolone is also useful and probably hydrocortisone is also useful for these patients with COVID-19. So the recommendation is for dexamethasone because recovery was done with, was done with dexamethasone and codex was done with dexamethasone. So the, 
the biggest evidence were, were done with dexamethasone. But probably, if you are uh, without dexamethasone, you, you, you do not have the supply of dexamethasone at your at your service. You can use uh, methylprednisolone or hydrocortisone with probably the same efficacy. So thank you very much, Luciano. It's all. It was. It was a pleasure to have you you with us, and uh, we need to move to our next speaker. Uh, so I have the pleasure to welcome uh, Professor Peter Horby. He is professor of emerging emerging infectious disease and global health. He is the former and the founding director of the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Vietnam. And uh, back on uh, Oxford on 2014, he established the Epidemic Disease Research Group at Oxford, the ERGO. Uh, ERGO is engaged in international programs of clinical and epidemiological research to prepare for and to respond to emerging infections. And now we are just facing one of these pandemics. So uh, it's uh, really a pleasure to welcome you, Professor. And uh, you, you're going to speak for us about the implementation of the recovery platform in the UK. Be welcome, Professor. Great. Thank you, Flavia. I uh, hope you can hear me okay. Uh, yeah, so I was going to talk about the implementation of the trial rather than um, going into detail into the results of the trial. Um, and so I'm obviously giving this presentation on behalf of the whole recovery trial team, which is a, a large team. Um, and a much larger number of investigators at the hospital sites. So I'd like to take you back to um, March, February, March last year, when we were setting up the trial. We had already done some work in China. Uh, we'd started two trials in Wuhan, but those trials, whilst they had enrolled very quickly within 20 days of the outbreak being announced, they had failed to enroll enough patients because the very aggressive control measures in Wuhan brought the epidemic under control. And so we were then shifting our focus from China to Europe, because at that time Italy was really suffering very badly. And we started to design um, a trial for the UK. And what we'd seen in Wuhan and what we'd seen in China really gave us a very clear picture that we could be trying to run this trial in an unprecedented clinical context with very overstretched health services, limited availability of beds, staff and ventilators, huge time pressures and personal stress on the frontline medical staff, and potentially a very large number of unwell, anxious and often elderly patients. So that was the context. And then huge therapeutic uncertainty. We'd started trials of lipinavir, ritonavir and remdesivir in Wuhan, but did not reach conclusive answers. And there were many candidate drugs being recommended, some of them rational, many of them irrational, uh, many opinions being given, um, but no real reliable data on any of them. A lot of uncontrolled case series were starting to emerge and, and inconclusive trial data. <clears throat> so we really had uh, a lack of a lack of certainty and a real dilemma for, for clinicians about what to, what to do for their patients. So the principles um, that we sort of started with was that we must be very quick. You know, even though we'd started in 20 days in Wuhan, we'd only enrolled a couple of hundred patients into those trials, so really not big enough for a definitive answer. So we had to get out of the blocks really quickly if we were to capture the first wave in the UK. That we wanted to be big. Um, we were unlikely to have a miracle drug. People who claim miracle drugs are generally not to be believed. Um, you know, we've seen you know, years of treatment of severe 
respiratory infections, um, both um, with anti-inflammatory drugs, but also uh, with antivirals in flu, and, and nothing very dramatic. So we should not design our trial based on a big win. Uh, but moderate benefits would be plausible and would be worthwhile. At the time we um, started the trial, there had been 1,500 deaths in, in the US. And you know, if we could reduce mortality by 20% by a fifth, we would save 3,000 lives. So really, you know, when you've got a very large-scale health problem, then small benefits have a big impact. And so we we were thinking about looking for a 20% reduction in the case fatality rate. I think you know some groups had, had powered their trials looking at 35, 40, 50% reductions in mortality, which we did not think was plausible. And so if you wanted a 20% reduction on a 20% case fatality rate in hospitalized patients, which is what early data were telling us in Europe, then we would need 2,000 patients per arm to have 80% power at uh, p-value 0.01. So we had to go big. And so if we're going to go big and quickly, it had to be simple. So we designed it to collect only essential data. Um, and it had to be open label. We couldn't enroll that, those kind of numbers of patients quickly enough if we were trying to get placebos to all the sites and get them developed. So we went for objective and uh, an unbiased uh, outcome. So that we reduced any risk of um, biases in outcome assessment. So simple eligibility, hospitalised with suspected SARS-CoV-2. Initially, we said you had to be um, confirmed SARS-CoV-2, but there was a delay in the early days in getting uh, results through. So we went for clinically suspected, and it turns out that you know over 85%, near 90% of patients are, are, are were and still are SARS-CoV-2 confirmed when they're enrolled. Mortality is an outcome, unbiased, simple, um, and we could ascertain it both through de um deaths reported by the clinical trial teams, but also through linkage to national data sets. So, you know, very high ascertainment of, of the primary outcome. And also other important outcomes, use of ventilation, duration of hospitalisation. Uh, Randomisation assigned patients between suitable and available treatments. So if a patient was not suitable for a drug or the drug was not available, um, that would be marked prior to randomisation in the system. Um, and then patients will be randomised to the drugs that were both available and suitable. So it's important to know that all the exclusions are prior to randomization, so there's no bias there, and that all comparisons are only between controls who could have got the drug um, through the randomization process. So they, they're a comparable group, and, and the, the randomization is concurrent. So all of the patients that are, that are controls were concurrently random, randomizable to the drug that they were controls for. We had very simple consent form, one page, a very simple uh, enrollment form, one page. Um, and we started with multiple drugs and we've evolved over time as an adaptive trial and we went more into factorial designs, which have been very, very helpful. We've used a lot of data linkage. So we're in a luxurious position in the UK of, of, of having a national health service with extensive data linkage. And you can see here, um, more than 15 data sets in which we have data linkage and we have approval for data linkage for 10 years. So we can look at outcomes um, with a very high degree of completeness. So we have 99% completeness for the, the primary and secondary outcomes through linkage to national mortality data sets, hospitalization data sets, um, to Cathy's group, ICNARC, et cetera, et cetera. So we get very high levels of, of um, completeness of, of follow-up and, and primary and secondary outcomes. And we also now have you know, linkage to primary care data, to renal and cancer registries, 
many, many um, information. We have linkage to the, the national um, COVID surveillance network, so we can also link through to um, genomics um, of the, the pathogen, etc. And this has allowed us to really simplify the trial, so it makes it very easy for the frontline healthcare workers to include patients. So we were really great in having a, a, a good regulator and a good ethics committee and a system in the UK where you can get um, national ethical approval through one committee. And so um, we submitted the first protocol on 13th of March and we had regulatory and ethical approval um, by the 17th of March. And then two days later, we enrolled the first patient in Oxford, here in Oxford. So just six days from submission of the first version of the protocol to enrolling the first patient. And partly that was down to the fantastic committees, but also down to the simplicity of the trial. It was a very you know, clear trial to begin with. And then the amendments have been very quick. So we added hydroxychloroquine. It was two days between submission and approval. Azithromycin, one day. Tocilizumab was nine days. And the inclusion of children um, was less than two weeks between submitting that um, and getting approval. So um, that's really helped us to really go through the, the different drugs very quickly. So this is the timelines in the first wave. So we went to speak to the chief medical officer. I went to speak to the chief medical officer <clears throat> um, on the 10th of March and explained what we wish to do within the National Health Service. <clears throat> and that was a 15-minute meeting at which we were given the green light, said, yep, that sounds like what we need to do, just go ahead. And it was just nine days from that meeting that we finished the protocol and enrolled the first patient. After two weeks, we had 1,000 patients. <clears throat> After a month, 5,000. And we had 10,000 patients in 56 days. So we really managed to catch the very early phase of the epidemic in the UK, which was fantastic, which meant that we captured um, the entire first wave and have been running ever since. This just shows you the, the breadth and scale of recruitment. So because of the National Health Service, sim simple protocol, simple contracting, we were able to open across the entire of the United Kingdom and the green dots are the hospitals that are enrolling patients and the size of the dots are the numbers of patients enrolled at each hospital site. And the graphic on the right is the enrolment in the first 100 days. Um, the, the top line <clears throat> shows that in 100 days, you know, over 11,000 patients or nearly 12,000 patients enrolled in, in the first randomization, which was the randomization that was, you know, steroids, azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine, etc. And then we introduced factorial randomizations. And so the second randomization is the tocilizumab randomization, you can see, which we started after 40 days. And the red line, the bright red line, is the convalescent plasma, which we introduced once the NHS blood transfusion service had started to um, develop uh, convalescent plasma for use. And this shows you you know, the, the, the enrolment, it really matches the epidemic curve in the UK. Um, and at the peak of the first wave, we were enrolling over 400 patients per day. Um, we thought we would never beat that. But unfortunately, we had a very big sort of second peak to the second wave. And during January, we were enrolling uh, at one point over 500 patients per day. And throughout January, we enrolled over 10,000 patients. And you can see a, a screen capture there on the right that we've now got nearly 40,000 patients enrolled at 181 sites in the United Kingdom. And if you look at the tabs at the top there, you can see we've also opened sites in Indonesia, IDN and, and NPL in Nepal. 
so we're going international now. <clears throat> Just to show it's very inclusive, um, this is the age at randomization graph, and you can see in the table on the right that the minimum age is less than one. So we have uh, infants enrolled, and the oldest patient is 103. So we're over a century in terms of our age span. Um, we include pregnant women. We've got over 100 pregnant women included, and children as well, with, with um, 267 children involved. And, and we have a randomization for children that's both um, classic COVID, but also those with the uh, multi-system inflammatory disorder. So we have a, a pregnancy and a pediatric working group who, who develop that part of the protocol. <clears throat> it is very simple. Um, this shows you how long it takes to randomize. So the system collects data on how long it takes to randomize. So from the point that you click a button that you want to um, enroll a new patient to the time you click the randomization button and you get the result of what the what drug the patient is to receive or drugs it's the mean is eight minutes so it's just eight minutes from deciding you're opening the computer screen to, to to enroll a new patient to actually getting the answer as to what to prescribe the patient um, so really you know the idea and what seems to have worked is really imb embedding the trial in clinical care so instead of physicians having a choice as to whether they give off-label drugs, um, they could uh, very easily enrol a patient and, and, and give treatment options through the trial. And we made it as easy as possible uh, and could be done by any frontline healthcare worker. And this shows you um, the, the number of patients admitted by hospital. So you can see you know, some hospitals on the left in blue, 2,000 patients admitted and on the right, you know, 100 patients admitted. And the, the dots are the proportion of each of those hospitals of the patients recruited. And you can see on average, about 10% of all patients admitted to hospital in the UK were enrolled in the recovery trial. And what this has meant that because it's large scale, it's efficient, um, we've got big numbers, um, uh, um, a pretty clear endpoint, we can do a re reliable evaluation of multiple treatments. And this shows you the drugs that have been or are in recovery uh, and the numbers of patients on the active treatment. So, you know, 1,600 were on hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, ritonavir. Uh, almost 6,000 received convalescent plasma, and almost 5,000 have received the Regeneron uh, antibody cocktail. 2,000 each dexamethasone, tocilizumab. We currently have uh, 1,500 patients uh, randomised to baricitinib. Um, we had 7,300 on aspirin, 2,500 azithromycin, and 5,600 on colchicine. So you'll see that the numbers are very different. So um, for the, uh, the standard drugs, we've gone for about 2,000, but for the very cheap uh, and easily available drugs like aspirin and colchicine, we went bigger because we wanted to see if we could detect a 10% uh, improvement in mortality. Uh, and then for the antibody treatments, convalescent plasma and the Regeneron, we've increased that sample size because we want to be able to detect an effect in, in patients by their baseline antibody status. So to be able to detect an effect in patients who are seronegative at baseline. And so yeah, the, the results, you probably know about them, you know, there's you know, at least three drugs that were widely recommended, widely used, but have been shown to be ineffective, hydroxychloroquine, lopinavir, ritonavir, and azithromycin. Um, corticosteroids we've heard about was widely not recommended early on in, in, in the pandemic and now is universally recommended. And tocilizumab, we heard from Tony, um, there was a substantial uncertainty and together the two trials really have, have changed that and it's now clear that tocilizumab in certain patients um, does have a benefit. 
uh, the legacy really um, this is a, a admissions board on an intensive care ward and you can see that there's been a column added about which recovery which covid trial the patient is in you can see some are in recovery and some are in remap cap you know and i think the legacy should be that uh, this kind of clinical trial is made easy enough that it can be done uh, by clinicians uh, on the floor uh, very easily so that we can you know offer options to patients but also learn something and improve care um, as we go forward and i hope we can take the learning from these kind of trials and use them in the future. So just to say thank you that I'm you know, one small part of this and there's an enormous number of people, including particularly the healthcare and research staff and the patients who've been involved. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have time to answer all the questions that we have Sorry. here, but maybe uh, you can just answer a single one, uh, which is... Uh, how how uh, it's a wonderful platform. You're so so it's marvelous, uh, and maybe you can just quickly answer the question about the, the workload of the cleaning process of your database. And uh, although you made it simple, I believe it's still a problem, isn't it? There, there, we we have a, a great team who do the data linkage, so we get um, <clears throat> all those linkage data sets every two weeks um, downloaded to us. Um, and then we we do, we do have a team who, who link the data sets um, using NHS number. So you do need a, an identifier for the patient so you can link the patient in the trial to all the data sets. And there is a we have algorithms we go through to to link the data and we have rules. So if you know if there's a conflict in the data, we have rules about uh, resolving those conflicts. Um, but what it does mean is all the work is at the back end really uh, and the, at the at the front end of the trial. At the you know, clinician patient interface, it's really very simple. I think that is critical. Thank you so much, Peter. And we need to move on. And it's my pleasure to welcome Professor Toboku Fuji. She is the leading investigator for the vitamins trial. Professor uh, Fuji is an associate professor at the Jiki University in Tokyo, Japan. And uh, he's working at the Jiki University Hospital as a specialist in intensive care physician, as, as the direction of the intensive care unit. Uh, she has been collaborating in uh, many investigator, international uh, Modi Center clinical research projects. And she's going to speak about vitamins and septis, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Be welcome, Tomoko. Um, thank you for the kind introduction, Flavia. Hello, I'm Tomoko Fuji from GK University in Tokyo, Japan. It's my pleasure to talk about sepsis trials in this World Sepsis Congress. My assigned title of presentation was Vitamins and Sepsis. However, we have only 10 minute slots, so I would like to focus only on vitamin C and sepsis. So let's get started. So the strong interest in vitamin C for sepsis took off in 2017 when a single center before after study from the United States reported that a combination of vitamin C, hydrocortisone and thiamine led to a dramatic decrease in mortality and rapid resolution of shock in patients with severe sepsis or septic shock. The biological rationale behind the vitamin C therapy is that patients with sepsis have significantly depleted vitamin C levels and that vitamin C works as an antioxidant and a cofactor in the synthesis of catecholamines in the cell, which may help reversing vasoplegic state of sepsis. Most mammals are able to synthesize vitamin C in their livers and the endogenous synthesis of vitamin C increases 
when the animals are exposed to stress. However, humans and guinea pigs have lost the ability to synthesize vitamin C due to the mutation in the responsible gene. So humans need to obtain sufficient amounts of vitamin C exogenously to prevent the possible fatal deficiency. Since the before-after study was published, more than 10 randomized clinical trials started to investigate if the observed effect could be proved in a higher level of evidence. And the vitamins trial was one of those trials. It was an international open-label randomized control trial conducted in Australia, New Zealand, and Brazil, aiming to determine whether the combination of vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thiamine improves the time-to-shock resolution when compared with hydrocortisone alone. Patients with septic shock were randomly allocated to the intervention group or control group. Patients in the intervention group received vitamin C, hydrocortisone, and thiamine. In the control group, patients received hydrocortisone. Of the randomized 216 patients, 107 patients in the intervention group and 104 patients in the control group were included in the analysis for the primary outcome. The primary outcome was vasopressor free hours up to day seven. And in the vitamin C cocktail group, vasopressor free hours up to day seven was 122.1 hours. In the hydrocortisone group, it was 124.6 hours. The median of all pair differences was minus 0.6 hours, and there was no statistically significant difference. There was no significant difference in all-cause mortality at 28 days or at 90 days after randomization. The numbers of patients who survived to discharge from the ICU or the hospital were similar between the groups. So the findings suggested that a treatment with vitamin C cocktail does not lead to a more rapid resolution of septic shock compared with intravenous hydrocortisone alone. And additional subgroup analysis was conducted to look whether there was any effect of early intervention. The first patient group in this table corresponds to a group uh, who received uh, the intervention within six hours of septic shock because the vitamins trial had two-hour window to identify vasopressor-dependent status, but there was no such signs of benefits in patients who received intervention within six hours or so. These findings in the vitamins trial were followed by their test trial. A test trial compared a combination of vitamin C and thiamine with placebo in patients with septic shock. The trial design was similar to that of the vitamins, aiming to cancel off the effect of hydrocortisone in the cocktail therapy. And the trial was conducted at emergency departments, which enabled the early intervention. And the test trial did not find any benefit with the combination of vitamin C and thiamine in SOFA score, mortality, or duration of vasopressor therapy. Most trials investigate the effect of the vitamin C cocktail compared to placebo or usual care. A randomized trial from China anticipated 140 patients, but the trial was stopped after 80 patients were recruited 
due to the increased adverse events of hypernatremia in the intervention group. With the available data, there were no benefits in mortality or duration of vasopressor therapy, but they reported greater decrease in SOFA score with intervention. However, the effect could not be attributable to the cocktail therapy, as we know that you know, hydrocortisone play a certain role in shock resolution. Orange's trial was conducted in two ICUs in the United States, again, comparing the triple combination therapy with placebo. The trial reported shorter duration of vasopressor therapy, but no benefits in mortality or SOFA score. Unfortunately, the primary outcome was changed from mortality to vasopressor-free days after the trial completed the final follow-up. So um, changing the primary outcome after the trial completion to a statistically significant outcome inevitably raises a concern of selective outcome reporting. ACT's trial was published more recently, which also compared the triple combination therapy with placebo. 200 patients were sent to analysis, and the trial did not find difference in the decrease of SOFA score or mortality benefits. Victor's trial is the largest trial comparing the triple cocktail therapy with placebo. The trial was designed to recruit 2,000 patients, but was stopped early when they recruited 501 patients. The available data showed that there was no difference in vasopressor and ventilator-free days, and no benefits in all-course mortality. So now that the vitamin C six grams per day is being investigated and the effect is not as imminent as was expected, so we need to take a step back and think about the dose. Because when we provide any intervention in clinical practice, we have to be sure that we're prescribing the right dose for the drug to take effect. So this is the phase one safety trial. The phase one trial focused on the safety of vitamin C in patients with septic shock. Uh, 24 patients were randomized into three groups to receive low dose vitamin C, which was 50 milligrams per kilo per day, or high dose vitamin C, 200 milligrams per kilogram per day, or placebo. Plasma vitamin C levels were suboptimal at entry, and they rose rapidly in the two treatment groups. Patients receiving vitamin C showed prompt reductions in SOFA scores in a dose-dependent manner, while placebo patients exhibited no such reduction. So the higher dose of vitamin C, which was 200 milligrams per kilogram per day, was suggested for further investigation. Then citrocellulite trial was conducted. 170 patients with septic RDS were allocated to either high-dose vitamin C group or placebo group. The trial had three primary outcomes, which were modified SOFA score, C-reactive protein, and thrombomodulin. There was no difference in any of the primary outcomes. However, 28-day mortality was decreased with a hazard ratio of 0.55. But there were 46 secondary outcomes, so the 
mortality benefit may be a chance finding, but the finding is appealing, appealing for further clinical trials. So how far have we come? This is a network graph of the comparisons which data we've had. Steroids for septic shock has intensively investigated in many large trials, establishing its role in the shock resolution of septic shock. So the vitamins trial and a test trial controlled the effect of hydrocortisone in examining the effect of the combination therapy to find the null effect of the combination of vitamin C and thiamine. And what we can expect in the next one or two years would be the result of randomized controlled trials comparing higher dose of vitamin C with placebo in patients with sepsis or septic shock. Remap-cap vitamin C domain is collaborating with Lovett trial in Canada, targeting COVID-19 related sepsis. So here are the conclusions of my talk. A biologically plausible rationale gives us hope and also passion, but we need robust data from clinical trials that are conducted rigorously before we implement new therapies into clinical practice. And answering a clinical question by clinical research is not a simple one-step process, as we've just reviewed the dose-finding study for vitamin C. And what we have come to know is that if vitamin C is given six grams per day, the mortality benefits are unlikely and the effect on organ support is inconclusive because many trials compare the mixed effect of hydrocortisone and vitamin C with placebo. And clinical trials with higher dose of vitamin C monotherapy are ongoing. So at this stage, Clinicians should remain focused on appropriate user care for sepsis, which should include prompt resuscitation with antibiotics and adequate source control. Thank you for attention. Thank you very much, Tomoko. It was a very nice presentation and a very clear one. Uh, we have a question here. It is about the combination uh, uh, of vitamin C and zinc and also a question about neonatal patients. If you can address them quickly, it will be great. Okay, so uh, interesting question, thank you. Um, there are a couple of trials, uh, I remember, examining the effect of the combination of vitamin C and zinc, but the trial size were not sufficient to draw any conclusion. So I think we need more data or more clinical trials. Uh, enrolling patients into the, uh, those groups. So uh, at this moment, uh, we, we can't draw any conclusion about the combination with such uh, micronutrients and vitamin C. And uh, I, I, I'm not aware of a sufficient amount of data, including neonatals. But uh, pediatrics trials have been started, so we may be able to see the results in the coming couple of years. Thank you very much, Tomoko, and thank you all. Uh, we, I believe we had a huge and great section, marvelous section, uh, and uh, certainly it helped us a lot to better understand uh, what is going on in terms of uh, impactful trials and innovative designs.
thank you for uh, uh, for all the attendees and thank you very much for all the speakers. And I also want to thank all of our sponsors uh, for providing us the chance to give you this wonderful World Sepsis meeting. And I also want to ask you to follow us in our social media. Thank you very much. Thanks for your listening and supporting the global fight against sepsis. Session 10 is already in the feed, and Session 12 and 13 are following on June 8th. Until then, stay safe and well.